This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to Episode 11 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we hear how the smart money is playing the investment markets, a special treat as two rock star economists share how the world will change through COVID-19. The World Health Organization shatters the myth of the virus only killing the elderly. A potential breakthrough in treatment through transfusions of the plasma of previously infected. And smart investors are accumulating shares of cloud and online retail companies. Inside COVID-19 from News. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, death from the virus rose above 50,000, with a quarter of those in Italy and a fifth in Spain. French mortalities hit 4,000 on Thursday, overtaking China as the third hardest-hit nation. Confirmed global infections are on the verge of rising above a million, having increased 9% yesterday to 965,000, according to data compiled by John Hopkins University. At around 220,000, the U.S. has twice as many confirmed infections as Italy and Spain. On the upside, around a fifth of those infected have now recovered, with 75,000 of them in China. South Africa's confirmed cases on Wednesday were officially 1,380, up a modest 27 on the previous day. COVID-19 is proving the final straw for many previously struggling businesses, Famous Brands announced Thursday it is cutting off any further funding to the UK hamburger franchise Gourmet Burger Kitchen, acquired three and a half years ago for 2.1 billion rand. Also teetering is South Africa's horse racing industry, whose listed company Pumalela says its revenue has fallen to virtually zero. It says once the crisis is passed, it will be forced to substantially reduce stakes available for those who ultimately fund the industry, the racehorse owners. U.S. unemployment queues doubled by a new record of 6.6 million this week after a 15-fold surge the week before, taking the growth in a fortnight to 10 million newly unemployed workers. During 2008's global financial crisis, it took 19 weeks for a similar increase in America's unemployed. The COVID-19 crisis, however, has seen a massive swing to digitally-based businesses, with online shopping giant Amazon.com having hired 80,000 new workers since the virus first hit the United States. Amazon is America's second-largest employer with over half a million staff. As we get a better understanding about COVID-19, the more we realize that previously held beliefs were wrong take the widely held perception that it is only the elderly who are at risk. The World Health Organization has now exposed that myth, warning that data shows this is actually not true. Younger people are dying too. This has particular implications for Africa, whose youthful demographics suggest that it was relatively immune. Here's the World Health Organization's Dr. Maria van Kerkhoven. COVID-19 is a real threat. It is a real threat to everyone um, on the planet. Um, It's a new virus. 
um, which means everyone is susceptible to infection. Um, it is a virus that causes disease in people, which range from some individuals will have mild disease, and a large proportion, 15%, will have severe disease, another 5% will have critical disease, and some people will die. So many individuals um, who will develop severe disease are older, but we have seen in a number of countries um, that younger people are dying. I'm looking at data from Italy here, and we have individuals in their 30s who are dying. Uh, we have individuals in their 40s, in their 50s who are dying. This is a virus that can be very serious in individuals, um, and so it's a real threat. It not only has public health implications, but it has very strong social and economic implications. Um, and everyone needs to understand that they have a role to play. Every person has a role to play in this pandemic um, and a sense of duty to ensure that they take every precaution that they can to protect themselves from getting infected and we've listed a number of ways in which people can protect themselves through hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette, through physical distancing, by removing opportunities for yourself to get infected. If you can prevent yourself from getting infected, you could prevent onward transmission to someone who may be more vulnerable, who could develop more severe disease and die. And that is a responsibility that you have to yourself, to protect yourself, to protect your family, and to protect your community and your loved ones. Um, and that is something that everybody needs to understand. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Given its business model of allocating funds to the country's best money managers, Discovery Invest's MD Kenny Rabson has access to some of South Africa's most insightful investment minds. In this fascinating interview, he shares what the smart money is doing now and which businesses are being hardest hit by the war against COVID-19. Restaurants uh, are collapsing everywhere, um, to be honest. Um, I think as the world is realizing that people need to be in lockdown, um, you're just seeing those things collapse, obviously, the quickest. Mm-hmm. Um so, so it's not surprising, and uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see which of these companies or chains can actually come back uh, after all of this. Because you know, I think we're in for a bit of a slog still. Anything that that seemed to be in trouble or or struggling or close to sailing close to the wind ahead of COVID nineteen is now really taking strength. Absolutely, um, you know, you've seen. You know, I think maybe you have to separate out South Africa a little bit from rest of the world, because even before COVID, um, you would have seen that on our stock market, there has been very little equity growth or nothing over a five-year period. So so uh, our economy has been struggling um, for a long time. And obviously, this is really just the final straw for many companies. Um, I think, you know, really what companies need to be concentrating on is, at the end of the day, this is like some have described it as a bit of a war going on. And you need to kind of worry less about your earnings at the moment and worry more about coming out of this alive with your balance sheet intact, um, your, your, your capital intact, um, solvency, all of that type of thing. Um, I think everyone sort of expects that, you know, earnings from companies across the world uh, are going to be impacted. 
um, negatively. There are obviously, I guess, some standout companies that maybe benefit from an environment like this. But in general, um, companies are still in for a rough time. Mm. How are the investors uh, in, D- in Discovery Invest reacting to this? Are they panicking or are they just gripping, holding tight? Alec, we haven't seen that much panic, to be honest. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that even before COVID, if you looked at the statistics in South Africa from ASISA, the unit trust um, statistics, the sales, the flows in South Africa, it's really been a risk-off environment for the last two years already. So most of the flows have been going into income funds, money market funds, as opposed to into the market. So therefore, I think South Africans have been quite conservative and cautious already over the last two years, um, largely more around the South African story, the downgrade risk at that point in time, uh, which is obviously now a reality, um, concerns around ESCOM, state-owned enterprises, etc. So, so a lot of people actually over the last years have moved quite a bit into more conservative investments. Um, in discovery, in fact, most of our products of uh, our unit trust sales have held up uh, quite well. In fact, discovery happens to be one of the top takers of flows in the industry. Um, and we haven't seen that much uh, panic at all. What we have seen over the last two weeks uh, is a lot more requests for people to take what we call contribution holidays um, on their uh, recurring contribution products. In other words, if you're paying every month into a retirement annuity, people have said, look, you know, times are tough at the moment. Can we take a three or a six month break, uh, on those contributions? And in most of the products in the country company, uh, offered by the various companies, there are rules around taking those contribution holidays. And we've seen those spike dramatically. So really what it means is that um, the average person in the street is feeling the economic bite at the moment. Um, and, of course, we'd rather give them a contribution holiday than them lapse their entire investment. And then effectively, um, they're discarding the strategy that they were building for their retirement. Um, so definitely more economic pressure. Um, but I think people aren't too rattled at the moment. Um, we're sort of saying to people that if you... You know, if you're in the markets at this point in time to sell, you would just really be turning your uh, paper losses into real losses. You know, it's it's not the time to sell out unless, of course, you are holding one or two counters that are just bad quality and are not going to come back from this. And obviously, one should be getting out of those. But in general, we are telling people to hang tight. We've seen from every market crash that's happened historically, whether it takes three months or three years um, which is really the, the sort of the time span after the various previous crashes to recover, uh, we know it will come right again. You know, the same company that you were buying three months ago, if you thought Apple was a great share three months ago, it's true their sales will be depressed for a period of time now while this whole COVID unravels, but it's still a great company. And therefore, to sell it out, uh, for, I'm just using that as an example, at these types of levels would be crazy. So I think the market kind of has hit, you know, whether it's hard to say if it's hit a bottom or how much further down it can go, but certainly it's way down from, um, you know, its its historical levels. Um, and and many people are seeing this uh, as a buying opportunity. You know, you're seeing people like Warren Buffett and investors like that actually choosing their um, investments very carefully at the moment. 
I think maybe the other point we're making to clients is it's probably not the time for passive investing and just buying the index because, you know, an index is made up of a lot of shares. Some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. And what happens in a crash is just everything is uh, decimated, um, good or bad. Um, and it's really a time now to be picking um, specific counters uh, and making sure you really are going for for quality as opposed to just the general index. Kenny, I, I'm quite interested. You mentioned Apple, uh, and there was a report today that since the crash began or since the uh, COVID uh, crisis began, Amazon has hired 80,000 people, and the share price of yeah. Amazon has gone up. Apple's actually held up quite well as well. Just from yeah. the investor's perspective, when you talk about risk-off, was it risk-off just in South Africa, or were they prepared to take risk internationally? Was was money actually flowing well, offshore? Well, well, the money was flowing offshore. I mean, we, we've seen, for example, you know, if you again go uh, to the period before COVID, the American market – was probably the only market that was really up over the previous five years. Um, uh, it had done quite well. Shares like Apple, Tesla, all of these companies were hitting all-time highs. And, uh, you know, some people sort of thought those valuations uh, were very heavy. Uh, but nonetheless, there was a lot of appetite for um, American equity. Um, over the same five-year period, in fact, if you look across Europe and the UK, the FTSE and the European indices were flat or slightly negative. Um, the only other market over five years that showed some sort of gain was uh, Japan. Uh, it showed r- roughly about a 20% growth over the five-year period, which is not really that much um, uh, in, in reality per annum. I think at the moment, uh, you know, you're sitting with a unique position that in South Africa, interest rates are fairly high. So, you know, you can still be in a money market or an income type of fund and be earning 7-8%. Um, okay, that is prior to tax. But nonetheless, that's a pretty good yield in an uncertain market, whereas in the U.S., interest rates are close to 0%. So, the truth is, you know, with low interest rate environments, people have had more appetite for equity because that's the only place they could get return. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, my, my gut feel is markets will bounce back from this. Uh, you know, obviously one can't determine how long this COVID-19 will, will um, prevail, but markets tend to come back from all of this. And therefore, I think people just have to stick with their longer term strategies um, and waited out, um, you know, for markets to recover. You, you've uh, got, you've obviously got uh, good connections with the best money managers in the country, and presumably some internationally as well. What are they saying? What What are these experts telling you and telling us by definition? Look, I, I think that tends to be uh, their view um, to to stick uh, on your on your current strategies. Um, you know, a lot of the selling that happened, we believe, was algorithmic. You know, once the index starts selling off, everything sells off, um, as opposed to people just selling individual counters here and there. So, you know, the, the international markets are so dominated by the ETFs and the passive space that the sell-off just happens very, very quickly and, in fact, um, has been uh, one of the quickest sell-offs that we've ever seen. Um, but most of them, in fact, are actually talking about certain opportunities. Um, they tend to be picking out certain counters, which they believe will do well in this environment. 
Um, you're seeing some of the hedge fund managers uh, actually signaling certain opportunities. Um, you know, the S&P 500 is sort of sitting at a level where it was last at this level in mid-2017. Um, you know, year to date, it's over 22% uh, down. So, uh, you know, we're seeing that actually the asset managers are starting to talk about opportunities and thinking about how to uh, position their portfolios to come out of this. I think in, in the South African space, most of them anticipated the downgrade whilst they didn't think it would necessarily happen now and they thought it would happen later in the year. Uh, nonetheless, they were positioning their portfolios for a potential downgrade. Um, so, so I actually think that, um, you know, this is an, it's, it's a, it's a time for the brave to look for some opportunities. Um, you know, those people are putting in money every month into products. In fact, if anything, they're buying more units for their money now. They're buying them at, at low prices. Uh, which I think is a good opportunity um, to, in, in terms of your wealth accumulation. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Here's a special treat for anyone wondering how the governments are coping with the COVID-19 crisis and perhaps more importantly, how the world will emerge from it. BizNews is a member of the World Economic Forum's COVID action platform for media, which holds regular updates from around the world, mostly off the record. But this week, it opened the window a little with a publishable discussion with respected economists Mariana Mazzucatu and Martin Wolf. Mazzucatu, a London University professor, is the closest thing you'll find to a rock star economist with her breakthrough book, The Entrepreneurial State, Transforming Thinking Worldwide. She is the highest profile member of President Soro Maposa's Economic Advisory Council and her ideas are clearly evident in the South African government's economic philosophies. Equally respected, Wolf is the economics correspondent of the Financial Times of London. Here's an edited version of their contribution. And what's interesting about this crisis is it's really revealed so many problems that we have in our current way of doing capitalism. There's different ways to do capitalism. Davos this year, I know all the talk was about purpose and stakeholder capitalism. And I think this is the moment to say, okay, if we're serious about that, let's make sure that we bring that lens of stakeholder capitalism, of collective value creation to the table and how we structure the details of um, things like the bailouts. And, and I just want to pause on the bailouts because that's really uh, quite striking how quickly so many companies, which often, you know, pretend that they want the state to stay away in bad times, they then ask for the state to come in. And, of course, the state should come in and help companies of all sizes. But how to really make sure that we bring conditionality, not in a punitive way, but in a way that really also lays the path for the kind of economy that we want to have uh, in the next 10 years, both because we need to have a recovery now, but even without the COVID crisis, so more inclusive and more sustainable economy, there's really interesting lessons, I think, coming uh, from around the world. And I think in the U.S., Elizabeth Warren has been very clear on the kind of conditions she thinks uh, should uh, be in place, both in terms of, for example, the airline industries, receiving the bailouts that they're asking for only if they promise to reduce their uh, carbon emissions. There's all sorts of different ways that you could also make sure 
that the companies that are receiving a part of their wage bill paid for is conditional, also not laying off the workers. It's quite striking how in the US, in the UK, for example, that hasn't actually been done. So something like 80% of the wage bill will be paid, but there aren't strong conditions in place to even make sure that the layoffs won't happen. So it's kind of potentially counterproductive. But also, um, you know, the the level of financialization of our economy, and this includes, by the way, lots of the health companies, the pharmaceutical companies that we are also asking to collaborate with state entities to help us get a vaccine. We know that the corporate governance model of these companies has been highly problematic with, in some cases like Pfizer, a, a very high percentage of the net income uh, being earned, being distributed through dividends and share buybacks. So, again, that is becoming an issue itself, um, in, not just with the companies, also with banks to be making sure that any uh, saving of, of businesses is conditional on not using these share buybacks and dividend payouts in a moment that we really require this reinvestment. Last week, Martin, uh, Wolf, you were saying that you hadn't had a, a great opportunity to look at uh, the measures being put in place, but the ones that you thought were getting it right uh, potentially with the UK and German responses. Have you had a chance to look in more detail at uh, who at those responses and have you got any further reflections on who's uh, putting in place measures that look to be robust and who needs to go further? Well, I've looked still mostly at the G7. Um, I think it's pretty clear as far as I can see that the worst that I've looked at of the major countries is the US. Um, uh, I think, as Mariana indicated, they all have, of these major countries, they all have problems, um, partly because it's genuinely difficult to create completely new systems for dealing with a problem that no one anticipated overnight. So I give them a lot of credit for managing to do anything. But I, we know what we're trying to do in theory. We're trying to protect the incomes of the vulnerable as long as the closures continue we want to maintain demand in, with, in line with the reduced supply. Um, we want to shift resources into the health sector and we want to maintain economic potential. So we don't want businesses to disappear completely with all their labor forces and so forth. Doing all that at the same time while making sure that the money gets through to individuals who are the first thing vulnerable is really quite difficult. I'm very sympathetic to the idea of uh, basic income in this situation. Um, I'm very happy with policies that pay people for short time work, which is what the Germans have been doing. Conditional, of course, on their continuing on the on the books. I think that's something Mariana has stressed. And I agree with that. We have a lot of questions about how we maintain economic potential. So since we don't want to bail out all the bad debts in the economy, um, the highly leveraged companies, which basically use this in order to to gear up uh, equity returns. Um, at the same time, we don't want to get gigantic chains of bankruptcy running through the whole economy. It's going to be very, very complicated and the situations in individual economies differ very much in the extent of leverage and where it is. Um, so one can't easily compare them all. So it, it seems, uh, Martin and, and Mariana, that, that both of you sort of uh, agreed that 
essentially it, we need big government right now. We need a, a government to step in to bail out uh, and, of course, uh, in, to the benefit of people, first and foremost, but, but in any case, uh, a big government. So this raises lots of questions. So first of all, in the basic, governments have decided for um, health policy reasons, which are going to become increasingly controversial, we can see this, to close down the economy. It's a conscious decision. So this is not a normal recession. It's a policy decision. I think it's almost certainly the correct policy decision. It's going to be very controversial as time passes. If a government does that, and of course a lot of it is happening because people are doing it too, they're just stopping, they're not going to, to buy anything or so forth, then government is the insurer of last resort for the economic system. That's what governments support. They're the insurers of last resort, period. So they're what you call big government is an absolutely inevitable consequence of the situation we find ourselves in. There's nothing in the least surprising. This raises two big questions. The first is, is that a permanent shift in the nature of government ongoing operation in the economy? And my guess will be it will vary. We'll see, but I think it will vary. The second big question which you've raised is, what do you get? What is sort of situation are you going to be in at the end of this? Well, there are some things that are perfectly obvious, as you said. There will be much larger debt, public debt. There will be very, very large fiscal deficits, and there will be long-term economic damage. There will be very interesting questions raised, not dissimilar to the questions raised after the financial crisis about what the response should be. And the debate over austerity, quote unquote, will quite certainly reemerge. Thank you. Mariana, I know you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, just I, th I think it's very important not to confuse um, big government with smart government. I don't know if you've seen also the recent uh, story about the ventilator procurement uh, in the U.S. that went terribly wrong. Uh, it, it's interesting to compare that with how the military does its procurements. So when we really think something is urgent, like winning a war or going to the moon and back again, which required procurement to Honeywell, Motorola, and General Electric, somehow the state has been very smart in how it negotiates the deals, the contracts, the conditions, you know, telling the private sector, no, that doesn't work, please try again, not just accepting any, uh, um, you know, thing that it produces. And I think here it's, it's very important to learn that we don't just need money to be pouring into the system. We need smart state institutions also to manage it. And I can tell you, because I've studied this quite a bit, I wrote a book about it, the outsourcing from government to the private sector in the last 30 years has also resulted in a, in a fall in the capabilities and capacity within government institutions to do their job. And probably the big difference between me and Mariana is that um, this is temperamental, I think, not intellectualist, that she believes <laughs> in the capacity of the state to reform itself on a higher level than I do. I'm, I will be very, very happy if we get through this, which I think will be a, an enormous test in something close to one piece with functioning societies and functioning economies at all. I'm that worried about where we are now heading. Right at the moment, we're at the emergency invention every week uh, stage, every policymaker is throwing money at the wall because it has to get there. 
uh, at once, and a lot of this is not very subtle, and it is very, very likely that they're going to be uh, uh, reinventing some of what they've done. It's going to be very, very messy. Depending on how long the stop phase is, or the stops, it could be two years. I mean, let's be clear, it could be two years that we're in, not like this, but we're in stops. Then then it may be possible, indeed, the force may be very powerful to really rethink how we do business. I mean, it, it's to do the sorts of things Mariana said, you need a long time. So the Second World War transformed the British economy in many ways, but it was effectively six years. The Moon Project was much longer uh, if it's going to be two years, then you might well see people coming back and thinking very, very hard about the way the institutions of society should differ from what they are now. But right at the moment, my very strong impression is no policymaker is really thinking about this. So it's a time for the intellectuals to think about that. They're just trying to get us through um, week by week in what is, of course, staggering uncertainty about how long this will last, whether they can get hold of it and reopen economies. We're seeing this happening now in China. We don't know what the consequences will be. Uh, and uh, they will make an immense number of mistakes. It's absolutely clear, and they will have to try and correct them as they go along. Could blood plasma from people who have recovered from COVID-19 provide the answer for critically ill patients? Such transfusions are among the most promising treatments scientists are investigating. They were approved by the United States' FDA earlier this week for treatment of serious cases until a vaccine is developed. In the UK, doctors are also considering a similar plan to harvest plasma from hyperimmune people. First in line for the treatment are healthcare workers. Our partners at the Wall Street Journal compiled this hopeful report. From the hospital bed to the lab table, many who recovered from COVID-19 are now eager to donate their blood plasma. The antibodies inside could make the difference between life and death for those who are currently critically ill. Our Charlie Turner spoke with reporter Amy Doxer-Marcus. Amy, researchers are working on this pandemic from a lot of different angles, from mitigating the spread of the coronavirus to treatment of COVID-19 to trying to develop a vaccine to prevent it altogether. Where does this project fit in? This project fits in in that it offers an immediate solution to some of the problems, or at least an attempt to find an immediate solution, because blood plasma can be taken very easily from people. And it is done the way a blood donation might be done. So the equipment is already available. And then it could be given to people. In fact, it already has been given to some people, but it could be up and running very quickly, buying some time while these other projects, which are more longer term, you know, progress. What are they using the plasma for? They're using it for the antibodies. When we are ill with an infection, you know, our body's immune system tries to, you know, figure out a way to attack it. And people, after they develop antibodies, that will help potentially in the future, you know, against that agent. 
Well, those antibodies are found in the plasma, which is the sort of colorless fluid portion of blood, and that can be separated out. And then those antibodies can be transfused into patients who are sick in the hopes that it would help them um, maybe rev up their own immune system or somehow fight off the disease. It was used in China recently with some of their patients, so there is some preliminary data that shows promise. What logistical challenges are they running into? There's quite a few. I mean, trying to do this in the middle of, you know, a pandemic is obviously incredibly stressful and difficult. You have everything from the fact that you need to test a lot of people with COVID tests. And while there are more tests available, that's still, you know, coming online. You need staff resources to sort of handle all of the intake and getting people places. And you also have a lot of people who are in their homes. They've been told to stay in their homes. And so how are you going to get them to the various places you need to get them to even, you know, start getting their blood donations? How has the response been? Have there been a lot of former patients willing to donate? Oh, yes. I've been told by everyone I've spoken with that the the response is tremendous. I mean, people really want to help. They, you know, people who are recovered patients feel that they want to help other people get through it. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that institutions are being flooded, both with people who are curious about it, may want to also seek plasma for relatives who are ill, but also people who are recovered patients and want to find out ways to become a donor. Amy Doxer Marcus of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. While the traditional economy is seizing up in many areas, some companies have actually benefited during the lockdowns. Among the most obvious is Zoom, whose CEO, Eric Wan, shared in a blog post that Zoom now has 200 million daily meeting participants. Peter Kenny, founder of Strategic Board Solutions, told Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovich and Paul Sweeney that successes like Zoom have enhanced investors' risk appetite in the cloud and online retail space. The federal governments, not just in the United States, as you accurately point out globally, are doing everything conceivable to address this shutdown, this this tightening up of credit. There really is no other option. That's all we can do and hope that in time that what is being thrown at this finds traction with investors. Investors find opportunity in that and begin to once again take that – you know, take on that sense of there's risk worth taking in the market, I think we'll find that. And oddly, and in a very counterintuitive sense of things this morning, the fact that the S&P has remained at 2,500 in spite of the fact that it's traded fractionally lower on and off all morning is is significant because it's saying, it's telling us that there there is a bit of a risk appetite in the market as counterintuitive as that may seem. Well, Peter, this is sort of the, the, the theoretical idea I've been struggling with for a couple days now, this idea that you have governments around the world printing cash, printing money as quickly as they can through their central banks and through their government spending, and yet inflation expectations are coming down. In the past, this has been consistent. However, asset inflation has been real, and I'm wondering at what point this will trickle into, at the very least, asset price inflation yet again. Yes. Right. Well, f- frankly, I, th- I think that policymakers on both sides of that equation, fiscal and monetary, 
are, are looking for inflation, whether it be in asset inflation or otherwise, any inflation would be welcome, frankly, and expected given every form of economic modeling. This level of cash generation and liquidity being forced through the system should, absolutely should, provide for some sort of inflationary lift to markets. That's the idea. Do we get it? I think we do get it. Lisa, I think we do get it. But there is a drag, there's a lag between fiscal monetary policy and accelerated liquidity being pumped through the system and markets and investors willing to step out of the risk off and into the risk on and start taking advantage of that opportunity because it is opportunity. All right. So, Peter, if you are willing to look past to the other side, where do you think investors should tread first? Okay. So I think there are two basic theses. You have to sort of get your head around looking past this. First of all, is it a V-shaped or is it a U-shaped? Um, I think it's something in between, uh, but I don't think that this lasts longer than uh, three quarters in terms of the ability of the economy to to find real sustainable, even if it's marginal, but sustainable economic expansion. So I'm actually optimistic on the other side of this. I think there's two basic themes that you can go with. One is growth, and the other is a, a less growth-centric and more of a um, dividend-centric, very, very um, low-beta sort of uh, portfolio. I like both. I tend to be on the on the former rather than the the latter in terms of I tend to be more of a growth investor, yeah. and I think there's huge opportunity um, in cloud, huge opportunity in cloud, huge opportunity in in retail. Uh, online, and I, I remain very, very convinced that that's a big part of the future for investors. This has been episode 11 of Inside COVID-19. Until Monday, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.